0: When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stenge Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit familylawrepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. It's familylawrepresentation.com. Stenge Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangee Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy. 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.
1: So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen.
0: This episode of Pretty Much Pop is sponsored by Good Chop, a delivery service for high-quality meat, Learn more at goodchop.com pretty120. This is Pretty Much Pop, a handsome, mysterious stranger entering your restless life. Could romance be in our future? Today we're discussing writing, and specifically the genre of women's fiction. My name is Mark linton
2: whose secret identity will be re- revealed in due time. I'm Al Baker, and I swear, I swear I'm going to have the draft to you tomorrow.
3: I'm Sarah Lynn Breck, and I did not think of anything pithy to say about this topic today. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're a writer.
0: Come <laughs> up with know. something from your writer brain. Take a second. I took a second. You saw my brain whirl. Take a <laughs> oh second. <my> God.
3: <laughs> I'm Sarah Lynn Breck, and, and I enjoy writing about terrible secrets. <laughs>
0: And our special guest returning, Catherine, introduce yourself.
4: Hi, I'm Catherine Lee Scott. I'm an actress and a writer, and I think they probably carry equal weight in my life. One seems to inform the other.
0: So we spoke to you back, it was only May. We released the episode in June about dark shadows, the thing that you go about keeping the torch alive for, for fans of that very ancient show. Fifty years. (laughs) But most of your professional life now is writing. And I was looking for another excuse to do this with you. Simultaneously, Sarah Lynn, will tell, tell about your book release, because you never get to talk about yourself as a topic on here.
3: I don't really mind that. <laughs> but, Too bad. We're um, doing it today. <laughs> yeah. I do write. I write women's fiction or book club fiction, but that doesn't seem to be particularly specific.
0: Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. What, what that means.
3: I basically tell people I write kind of relatable, contemporary, slice-of-life stories that center family and friendships that kind of tug at the heartstrings.
0: So you just released this, the
2: light of the fire that we have all mm-hmm. experienced. Al, did you experience it? I experienced a good chunk of it, I'm afraid. No sp- well, you can spoil it, but it'll ruin my enjoyment of the rest.
0: Well, I think we don't want to <laughs> actually could, no. spoil the two books completely. We could talk about we don't the genre and your experiences of writing them without making people actively not want to read them. Uh, Catherine, you, <laughs> you, when, when we proposed this to you and pointed out what Sarah's book was about, you said September Girl, which is 2019. Is that right?
1: Right.
4: I chose that because Sarah Lynn was going to talk about, uh, uh, we, we were going to talk about women's fiction. And I've written this in several genres, but I think that that one is just straightforward women's fiction. Yeah. It's not a thriller. It's not a mystery. It's not paranormal. It's straightforward women's fiction.
0: So we wanted to get at somewhat what that genre is. And then also, let's, you know, sort of compare notes. How how the writing process, how this fit in with your life. I know this was not the thing you started out doing, Catherine, but then Sarah, well, Sarah, did you, you, you started an actress too, right? And you stumbled into this or am I?
3: I did do some acting. I didn't do a, a ton of acting, but yes, I did do some acting. And I definitely feel like my acting experience has informed my life as a writer for sure.
0: And I assume Al, you have not secretly written a bunch of women's fiction that you need to tell us
2: about. I haven't. Like when I was growing up, I was, I was sure that I would end up being a writer, because it was the main thing that I was good at and enjoyed, and especially a fiction writer. But as it turned out, I never got there at all. And some of the questions that, that I'm going to have for you guys later is going to be informed by my failure to realize that childhood admission even remotely.
0: And I think I'm sort of in the same boat. I liked writing fiction as a young person. I wrote a pretentious trunk novel, basically. I mean, it's on the internet. You can find it. But just after college, I write professionally, but not fiction. And looking at this genre and other folks that I know who are, you know, really into literary fiction and reading all the classics and things, it's it's intimidating that it seems like I'm not going to be James Joyce, so why should I even bother? I'm not going to write the great American novel. I can't contribute to this. But as somebody who does technical writing and advertising writing of things and looking at these two books, especially Sarah, you know, that, that you know, that you teach this writing class and I could sort of see like, mm-hmm. wait, this setting up the plot, these are skills Mm-hmm. In much the same way that, you know, a good technical writer, you know, something develop, c- can Catherine, let's let's get you first. How how did you sort of develop these skills over time?
4: Oh, I I think I've been a writer and an actress since I was in second grade. Mm. <laughs> I I wrote a little play called, about George Washington. I gave Martha Washington all the good lines and then and then we did it for my second grade class. I think that's where it all started. But I've been a writer and an actor uh, really my entire life. And it's interesting that you're referring to women's fiction as a genre. To me, a genre is cozy mysteries, uh, thrillers or westerns. Those are genres, but I think a straightforward women's fiction pretty much covers mid-list titles. Am I right, Sarah Lynn? I, I, yeah, in a can, uh, you can have a foot in both camps, literary fiction, which I think you were a little touching on a little bit earlier. But it it can touch a little bit on literary fiction, but it's generally just popular
3: fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And women's fiction is kind of a problematic title for a lot of people because we don't call men's fiction, it's just fiction. You know, It's <laughs> according to Women's Fiction Writers Association, I'm a member of WFWA, and they say that women's fiction, it means that these writers are creating layered stories in which the plot is driven by the main character's emotional journey. So the main character doesn't even have to be a woman necessarily, but it really is about its character forward. It's about the emotional journey over something like, you know, a, a heavy plot, like a thriller would have a heavy plotter romance has those certain beats that you need to make so Cheryl that men's fiction tends to be
4: uh, I mean it's not just about hunting fishing and war it's more genre if, right. you, if you think about it unless you're going again into literary fiction but uh, otherwise it uh, men men's fiction is largely genre women's fiction is largely genre but women's fiction I totally agree with with your definition of it it is about the emotional journey
2: mm-hmm Mm-hmm. It was interesting because that to me just defines good fiction. Like even then, like, I'm a big fan of genre fiction. This conversation has already started on a really interesting note because the idea of women's fiction as a genre for all the reasons that you pointed out doesn't really make sense. And one of the biggest reasons is that especially these days, vast majority of fiction readers are women. So it's very odd to have like women's fiction, fiction written for women as a subgenre in the context where most people who are reading anything fictional are women. But it's odd also to try and define women's fiction in terms of the emotional journey of the protagonist, because I would be annoyed in any piece of fiction if I read, if I felt like the action wasn't motivated by the emotions of the characters, whether that's like some speculative sci-fi or a romance novel or literary fiction of any kind.
4: Yeah, I I have to agree with you too, Al. And but Quite frankly, I'd rather be, uh, my, my work referred to as women's fiction rather than hit lit or chick lit. Yeah. Chiplet, oh, yeah. God. Those are, those are two terms or that are mom lit. <laughs> I don't like that term because romance, certainly your book, Sarah Lynn, has a lot to do with romance, but it's women's fiction. Romance novels, I, I know I, I there, there are certain, very strict guidelines, and a romance fiction editor definitely knows when you've uh, stepped out of it. You really stepped out of it with your book. Mm. You could call that a romance novel because it you have subject matter in there and uh, things that happen that can't happen in a very straightforward, legitimate romance guidelines.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, but don't you think, too, as September Girl, I think romance is definitely more front and center, but I would still say that your book is women's fiction because it, the romance wasn't the story. It was really the story about her. It's a book about facing the past straightforwardly,
4: finding redemption and uh, a way to move forward, which is exactly what Beth and Lynn go through. Uh, Ali excuse me, mm-hmm. in uh, your book. They come face to face with something they did in their past, something that happened in their past, and uh, betrayal and all sorts of things. They make peace with it. That's really the theme of September Girl as well.
0: I think we just have a hard time talking about drama as a genre, because of course, all fiction is supposed to be dramatic. But so you use the term middle tier, is that sort of sort of, there's literary fiction, and then there's romance and sort of the some sort of formula on the bottom and then middle? Is that what middle tier refers to? Or was this a
3: marketing thing? What? Midlist. Yeah.
2: What does that mean? Does it mean where you expect it to end up on the charts? <laughs> well, I,
3: th- I think in terms of, you know, where they are on the charts, but I, it's, you know, like Stephen King is not a midlist author. A midlist author is someone you may not, they may not be a, a name you recognize necessarily, but they do okay. They sell books and they, often stay with the same publisher for a while or or not actually it's the publishing industry has really changed lately but some of the biggest names that you would recognize are actually in women's fiction so like Jennifer Weiner is huge and she is definitely not midlist or Fleischman in a trouble was a huge book um the biggest book from last year was Lessons in Chemistry not midlist right But there are plenty of people who are, who are doing okay as midlist authors. Their books may not be made into movies, but they're kind of chugging along. And to me, midlist also means that it's a, it's a one-off.
4: It's not part of a series. It's not, uh, standalone. Yeah. It's book and a series of mysteries with the same character. And September Girl is definitely a one-off. And again, you, um, you get known for a certain style of writing, I guess. And I think that i bounced around a bit. That doesn't help you sell books.
0: You're making me wonder, though, if if drama ends up being women's fiction, like, why isn't there, like, I'm sure there are writers, there are male writers or people writing for male audiences who are just doing straight-up drama, uh, but the ones that occur to me, like Russell Banks, I have read a lot of, is definitely sort of in the literary fiction category. It's like, I take myself very seriously, I do all the historical research, And it is really depressing. It's like, it's not a fun pop experience at all. I mean, is that just the way the marketing goes? Because there's not as much of an audience for that. Whereas for women's fiction, it's more of a cultural thing. They're allowed to feel, you know, it's, it's a, whereas men are, oh, we want to do all thrillers and, you know, I don't know.
4: What's interesting, my, uh, my boyfriend who's, uh, who who's actually an attorney and a, an a editor and a journalist and so on. But he also writes thrillers. But he's written a book called uh, The Man Who Fell in Love With His Wife. It's it's a new book that he's just finished. Uh, it's written by a guy, and the protagonist is a guy. But it's dramatic. It's romantic. It's all the things that one would be looking for in women's fiction. And you're, you're right. There's six guys write
3: that kind of book as well. Yeah, I don't know. We don't say guy fiction, though, do we, Sherilyn? We don't. And it's even bugs me that someone like Jonathan Franzen, who writes The Corrections, which is about a family, that is considered upmarket or literary, whereas someone like Ann Patchett, she writes beautiful, beautiful books, and she will be put into women's. And I would say that hers is also borders literary as well. But they're thought of differently. That bothers me. People like Nicholas Sparks, he writes women's fiction. The Notebook is women's fiction slash romance. So it bothers me that these labels are created. They feel very sexist to me. And Ian NBQ, who I just uh, mentioned, beautiful, yeah, beautiful,
4: lovely, wonderful books. Many made into films, I might add. mm mm-hmm.
0: So genres tend to have formulas, you know, you, you know what you're getting into. You know how depressing it's going to get, whether characters are going to be brutally murdered or not. You probably know that from the beginning. Yours, Catherine, I, other than you just suggesting it as something by its uh, description was comparable to Sarah's. I didn't really know what to expect. And I was listening to the audiobook version, which is great. Re- you reading it because it was the audiobook version. The cover was very small on my phone. I didn't read. So on the, on the cover. Somebody added, maybe this was your publisher, I think we can talk, she thought she knew their story, but the truth will astonish her. And so this was a big clue that something is going to happen. So the first half of the book, I was like, this is just a very realistic portrayal of a woman whose husband has died, who is getting in touch with somebody she used to know. So it's just going to be a slice of life. It's just going to be very realistic. And then when it finally took its turn, which I don't want to spoil, then, oh, okay, something is happening more than just, uh, you know, the, the expressions of the individual. I don't know. Maybe that's what literary fiction sort of amounts to in a lot of cases is it's just the characters. It's just the way that I'm writing this. It's just getting you in the mindset of this person and not necessarily that there's going to be any suspense.
4: Well, I didn't it yet. Uh, September Girl, I mean, World War Three does not happen, <laughs> but that when there are five big reveals that are cataclysmic. Mm-hmm. They totally change the trajectory of her life, and uh, it's huge betrayals, and she makes her peace with it in the end in the only way that she can. Among the things that I find so horrific, uh, Things that cannot be undone. And I'm dealing here with five big reveals of things that cannot be undone. There's no way around it. You have to find a way to deal with it. But she doesn't deal with it until many, many years later. And I think that that happens. And by the way, that is also the case in Sarah Lynn's book. And when I was reading it, I couldn't help but think about the consequences of the two women who both happen to be actresses, both, have, both of them happen to have two daughters. And in each case, they tried to pay to get one of the daughters into USC. And they were caught and served prison time and paid huge fines. The retribution happened very quickly. It was a matter of a couple of years. They are going to live the rest of their lives with those consequences because it definitely affects their family life. And in one case, they had to sell their home to pay the fines, which were substantial.
3: So when I was reading your book, I could not help but think, Sarah Lynn, about that. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't even think about that, but, uh. <laughs> it popped into my head. <laughs> it's not, say so you had two daughters.
4: Mm-hmm. That is always going to be there. Mm-hmm. And that can never be undone. Mm-hmm.
0: Since this is revealed in the first scene, I think we can spoil that much because it's the premise of the whole book that it's, it's mm-hmm. two, two girls who accidentally set a fire many years ago and sort of, you know, from the, from the first page, this book is going to be about dealing with that and its long-term consequences.
4: Mm-hmm. And, uh, you don't tie it up with a pink ribbon. I mean, these women really pay for what they did. And in September Girl, the loss that this woman suffers from this huge betrayal, I mean, lied to. I mean, she lost a child out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I don't know what the seed from your story was, what the catalyst was, but I can tell you that mine for September Girl, it turns out to have almost nothing to do with the book, but it was having lunch with a schoolmate of mine from high school, and she and her husband had divorced, he'd remarried. And she never remarried. And I said, well, do you ever see Jim? Do you ever run into him? Because they had two daughters together. And she said, oh, yes. I run into him at weddings and funerals, you know, but he always brings that other woman with him. That other woman's his wife. (laughs) A couple of decades. And I realized that my friend could not come to terms with that decades later. Hmm. And that really stuck in my head. That's got to have a huge effect on your emotional life, maybe your physical life, not to deal with something so consequential.
3: Yeah, isn't that funny that the spark can come from just a conversation? You know, it can come from something that you overhear on the bus or something. You know, I just, it doesn't have to be autobiographical necessarily. It doesn't have to be something big that happened to you or someone that you knew. But it could just really just kind of spark your imagination, just a casual conversation that you have over coffee or something. I love that. And you just touched on something that I'd love to talk about. When
4: you do book signings, how often does somebody ask you if this is based on your own life? When you bring up autobiographical, my feeling is that in September Girl, I write about arenas that I know. I know I know New York in the 60s. I know... The culture of Time Life and Newsweek. My protagonist is an actor. I know that world really well. But people think that you're writing about yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I promise you, I've never had a baby that was taken from me. <laughs> there are so many things in September Girl that I write about because I know about them.
0: You've lost a husband,
4: right? I mean. I have lost a husband. Yes, I have gone back and explored something that early in my life that I had never quite resolved, but not this. Mm-hmm. So again, Sarah Lynn, do you find that when you go to a book signing and somebody thinks you're writing, you've written
3: about yourself? Oh, yes, of course. I loved the way you put it, that you write about arenas that you're familiar with, you know, and I think I, I relate to that so much. I know so- the soccer world, for example, because I used to play and I was also a soccer mom. My daughter played. So I know that world very well. Even though I'm very familiar with the soccer world, I didn't know what it was like to be a professional soccer player. I had to do research for that. I actually talked to somebody who played for the U.S. women's national team. She gave me some of the, you know, day to day intel on, on what it was like to be a professional soccer player. And that was really fun. That's part of why I do this is so that I can, you know, I can get outside of myself and see what it's like to be that kind of a person. So usually, you know, I'm writing about, you know, as you said, arenas that I'm somewhat familiar with. The most fun part about writing for me is getting outside of myself. Yeah. And doing the research. Yeah. I, I love doing research and something
4: else that we should talk about, because again, we've both experienced it. And that is a publisher, an editor, who chooses to change the title of your book mm-hmm. to write a back cover copy. Well, you could do it as misleading, it's true, but it focuses on something that wasn't your focus in writing the book. So we both experienced that, uh, and there are consequences. What were
3: the consequences for you? Of changing the title? Yes.
0: What was it called
3: originally? It was called Offside, which was my working title. I actually liked it, but it was very soccer focused. And my editor was worried that my readers would not connect to this book if they thought this was going to be only about soccer. And in the end, I agreed. I agreed with her. Um, we needed to figure out a different title. So Light of the Fire is what we all brainstormed together, and this is what we came up with. Which I think actually it fits with the themes of the story about finding yourself, forgiving yourself, that friendship and rekindling friendships and romance. I think that that's stuff that's all within, you know, within the book and the title. But I do miss Offside. Offside just kind of rolls off the tongue, you know? What was your experience, Catherine, with changing your title? It's a book now that I, uh, I wrote
4: some time ago. It's a, a novel and I recently got the rights back. Oh, good. When you start out to write a mystery series, I, I wanted to develop a character and a, and a world around her in which she was an amateur sleuth. I, I'm, I, I mean, I love Agatha Christie and Josephine Tay. <laughs> uh, you know, and Kyle Marsh. I, I, I just love all of those wonderful writers and Marjorie Allingham. But by changing the title, it wasn't a title that adapted itself to being used as a partial title for the ongoing books. It also put me in a category that I didn't feel comfortable in, which was chicklet. This was more amateur sleuth. I think that the publishing company tended to have the greatest success in that chicklet area. And, and so they kind of squeezed my, my book into it. But basically, it in, it didn't quite hit the right notes that mostly women who who read those cozy mysteries or amateur sleuth mysteries or whatever, they literally, as they're finishing the last page, they're pushing the button for the next in the series. And some of those uh, mystery writers write maybe three or four of those a year to fill that that hunger. I write slowly and I cannot churn out books like that. And I was squeezed into a category that was very uncomfortable. And essentially, I did write one more in the series, but it just didn't work. I'm going to try to repackage now and write a, a third and a fourth. I've already have them outlined, but it really set me back. Hmm. And, uh, and chiclet is something I'm, that's just not a genre that I want to, I want to be in. Mm-hmm. It's so much about the marketing. Listen, I, I, They've <laughs> done Hallmark movies, so. uh, but Chicklet is is more in that category. It's a very it's a very strict genre.
0: So a Jinx Fogarty mystery. They wanted it to become a this is you know there's going to be forty of these. I don't know get get other writers involved. Like I, I'm not sure how if you're if you're not that kind of writer with that kind of dedication to creating this one thing, like it's a TV show or podcast that you're just churning out week after week trying to
4: buy back that moment when i was on a on a roll to, uh, to you know to write that i really loved the character and i really wanted to do more with her uh, she was very sharp-tongued and and so on it was definitely not chiclet.
3: so maybe my experience is a little bit different from yours, circle because i think I, so i mean and also you know lake union is really about book club fiction if you take a look at some of the lake union titles they are all book club or women's fiction, but some of them have some thriller elements. Some of them are more romance heavy. You know, it's there's a kind of a large Venn diagram where we all meet, but there's a lot more variety at Lake Union than you might think there would be, uh, which is great because, you know, I don't want to write the same thing every single time. I want to write something with more mystery elements or something with more humor, you know? And hopefully they'll they'll want to take it. (laughs) So we'll see. (laughs) Hey, it's Sarah Lynn from Pretty Much Pop here to tell you about our sponsor, Good Chop. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's just not going to happen this time of year. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for me. Good Shop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. The products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. In fact, last week I baked portions of salmon for my husband and me. I threw in some quinoa and tossed a salad and bam, a healthy, delicious dinner was ready in 30 minutes. You can't beat that. Good Chop especially prides itself on sourcing meat that comes with no antibiotics or added hormones ever. No artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. They're so confident in the quality of their cuts, they offer a 100% money back guarantee. Love Good Chop or get your money back. So go to goodchop.com slash pretty120 and use code PRETTY120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code at PRETTY120 at goodchop.com slash pretty120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash pretty120. Code PRETTY120. Oh, oh.
2: One question I wanted to put to both of you because uh, it talks about this a little bit, but and where do you get your ideas from? Question is obviously the most boring question that you can that you can ask a writer, but there's a a particular spin on it that I thought would be interesting to ask both of you, to particularly because you are like more in the category of working writers. You're not the the superstar because asking like Stephen King, where do you get your ideas from? Is going to produce a certain type of answer, which is not necessarily useful to most people who want to get into writing. Because if we ask Stephen King, "What well, where do you get your ideas from?" The answer is, "Well, I just write about whatever the hell I want, and I know it's going to sell two million copies, so who cares?" <laughs> but what I'm I'm really interested in asking you guys specifically isn't just where do you get your ideas from, but which ideas in particular do you decide to to focus on? Or something I'm really interested in, as regards to you guys and you and your process and the process of writers in general, is you only have a certain amount of time, right? And maybe if you're, for most writers, it's not the only thing they do. They have other jobs that they do part-time, other stuff they do to pay the bills. Not just where do you get your ideas, but how do you decide which idea is going to be worth putting the months or years in that you need to put in in order to produce a, a novel at the end of it? And as a part of that, how do you navigate the need to get it published? How do you know which idea is, is going to be worth your time, is going to keep your motivation while you actually write the thing? and is also likely going like, to tickle the interest of a publisher at the end of it?
4: That's a very, very good question, because as a writer, I am not a hobbyist. Mm. And an actor, I'm not a hobbyist either. I write to be read. Again, that we were talking earlier about, since both of us have acting backgrounds, so much of what I do as a writer comes out of my uh, acting experience. And I guess I am drawn to a, a certain... Kind of storytelling, which I am as an actress as well. So I've got two books now that I've, I've started and one of them is almost half finished. Another one, perhaps two thirds the way finished. I'm not happy with either one of them and putting the time in to make them work isn't appealing to me. I'd rather start fresh with something new. I don't have a problem discarding something that I don't feel is worthwhile for me to write it or worthwhile for
3: somebody to read it. I write to be read. Is that a good start to even then? No, that's so true. I think part of it is you have to think of who your reader is. But also for me, I think the ideas that are sticky are the ones that I can't stop thinking about, that I just kind of become obsessive about. So one book that I'm writing now is set in Chicago, and it's about four women who met Over an improv class, which I did, you know, I did that in my twenties. I did some improv classes and I did improv in Chicago at that point. And I wondered what these people would be like 10, 15 years down the road, you know, almost like a story where a group of friends meets in high school or in college or something. I decided to make it in the world of improv. And so that for me is just kind of the start of, okay, well, what if one person actually is still in the entertainment industry? What would that look like? What if? What would it look like if someone moved on to something else and took some of those skills? What if somebody decided to quit altogether because she was angry at, you know, circumstances that she felt was unfair during that time? You know, that kind of stuff. And so those are the kinds of things that I find that are, if I can't stop thinking about it, then I think it's something that could be worth writing about. Yes, and you bring up a, a very good point about what if. I'm, everything that I write
4: begins with what if. I mean, that's the nub of, <laughs> of any of any story. Uh, and, and by the way, I write both fiction and nonfiction, and most of what I hear was nonfiction. I didn't start writing fiction uh, until my husband was ill. He had a neurological condition, and it was progressive. So I spent uh, more and more and more time with him as a caregiver. And I found be I, I could be in the same room with him and be company for him, but also have my laptop open. Every caregiver knows you need respite. I guess that was my respite. And I started writing something that is totally a, a paranormal fiction. I have no idea why I ended up doing that, but I began with a what if and I had the best time writing it. I still think it's one of the best things that I've written. I know it grew out of Dark Shadows, of course, because... I imagined, what if the, a, a young girl goes to New York, she's a vampire, she's a real vampire, and she has these formidable skills or whatever, but she doesn't want to use them. She she wants, what if, having these gifts, she wants to prove that she can make it on her own as an actress. And in New York and and find out as a young woman, what is it like if I'm living totally in a a world of normal people? Anyway, it was a fun, it was a really fun book to write. I think I kind of jumped in with both feet, writing fiction and writing something, again, about an arena that I knew about, but experiences that I had never had.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and fun, I think, is kind of an operative word there. You know, it's If I'm not having fun, and it doesn't have to be fun the whole time, but if I'm not having fun, then it's probably not the project for me. How disciplined are you as a writer? What is your, what's your day like when you're writing? So right now my daughter's in college, so I start my day with writing. Otherwise, because I have a full-time job as a writing professor, I know that my grading will get done by the end of the day, no matter what. I know that my lesson plans will get done because they have to. Even if I'm up at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, that's going to get done. But my writing is something that if I leave it to the last, you know, to the end of the day or after I've already done all my work for my day job, I may not do it. So I just put that first. I get my words in and then I move on to all my other stuff. Do you set a number of words for the day? If I'm in drafting mode, yeah, I usually do a thousand words a day. How about you? A thousand. Isn't that funny?
4: Uh, but yeah, that's my answer as well. Oh, really? Yeah. And what's really interesting is when I'm writing fiction, I never outline more than two or three chapters ahead. I learned that a while ago. If I do, if I outline more, I'm just like a horse heading for the stable. I get there too fast. Oh, I see. <laughs> but uh, if I if I outline maybe just three or four chapters ahead, it keeps me. In a channel, and I'm, I'm not writing myself into a corner, but it also leaves room for fun and surprise. So I think that's what a lot
3: of us, you know, when we're actually drafting that. Yeah. And that's something you can crank out, you know, in a couple hours, if need be. It might take me until lunch, but
2: that's a good amount of words to that. Like you wouldn't feel too terrible. Throwing a thousand words away if you look back at them the next that's day and ra- decided they were garbage. <laughs> right, it's not. It's-
4: my writing session by reading over what I wrote the day before, and that propels me into the next bit of writing. Interestingly enough, I read a movable feast. You know the Hemingway thing, and that's what he always started with: reading over what he wrote the day before. You know, making those little adjustments and doing some rewriting and so on, and then you're.
0: You know, it's kind of a glide path into the day's work. It's really interesting hearing, hearing the two of you outline these two plots that you're coming up with. And I guess as somebody like Al, who has flirted with fiction, who has maybe tried some fiction, has written some things, but never, you know, made the jump to doing it in a serious way. Um, it seems like the two things that are, I, you know, so, so Sarah, your are this idea of the, the four people getting to get, uh, with this bet. Ba- That's the kind of thing that like, if I was thinking about this, I would just want to drop it in an essay and just kind of say, start with what you were just saying, literally, because there's delayed gratification. In other words, what you were talking about, Catherine, that if you, you know, I kind of want to just dump the whole plot. I want to just get it all out there. But then, oh, then I have to spend time working up. Okay, now I've set the 12 scenes that are going to come and I have to work. I have to polish this one like that's that's not that fun. I'd rather just do it. That's so funny. And then empathy. So if if you're only thinking from your own point of view, then you just, you know, you write an essay, you just, you dump. But if you're, as you were describing, Catherine, what would it be for this character to be around these people in this situation? Then it is like improv. It is that you are, you're dividing your mind into characters and you want to let them play with each other. This is how Stephen King actually talks about it all the time, Al, right? Like he doesn't know where his stories are going. I'll set up a situation. I'll set up characters and I'm discovering along with you, you know, as I'm writing.
4: Well, I also satisfy my instant gratification needs by writing essays. I do, I do uh, almost a column a month for this AERP newsletter. That allows me to write about certain things that I, I really want to write about, but they, they, they're not going to be suitable for long form. So I, I really like writing these short form pieces. They're fun and it kind of resolves my need to write them. One of the books that I've kind of put aside is based on my, my great aunt who was a traveling sales lady. She sold electrical underwear. Um, <laughs> what? <and> that,
2: <laughs> yeah, we're going to have, we need a bit more explanation <laughs>
4: <laughs> because electricity was a big, big thing back in that era. Mm. 1910 is the mm. time that.
2: Oh, so it was like, it was a health thing. It was good for what I'll see. Exactly. The, yeah, I was eating. Exactly. Yeah, okay.
4: Inner souls, electrical, you know, sleeping caps, uh but electrical corsets, including an electrical uh maternity corset. Anyway, I've got all of this material that my great aunt left in a satchel, and it's great fun because it, it's the order forms and everything. So really wonderful research materials. The problem is that she is my great aunt and I know her story for real, uh, fictionalizing it has turned into more of a problem than I would have thought. Again, because of the ending, I know the story.
3: Fictionalizing it is problematic. <laughs> wow. So you don't know the endings of, generally, of the books that you write? Generally not. What about you? Do you know your, did you know the ending for uh, Beth and Allie? Yeah, I mean, it changes. I do. um I'm a big outliner. So I like to plot my stuff out. I don't follow it strictly like a map. But I do. I like to plot things out first and make a plan and know what I'm writing toward. That just makes me feel more comfortable because I've had the opposite. I've My first, very, very, very first novel, I kind of wrote my way into a hole and couldn't get out of it. <laughs> so... So I figured after taking some classes on how to write story, I learned that I, I'm I'm an outliner. I really like having a plan in front of me. Teach that to your uh,
4: students. I mean, there are the two classes, the seat of the pants and the outliner. And mm-hmm. definitely in that camp.
3: Yeah. I mean, and there's also somewhere in between, too. But for my students, I try and give them options, let them know that there's a bunch of right ways to do this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah interesting
0: <laughs> well, that's the improv thing, so like I think curb your enthusiasm, they know what is supposed to happen in the scene, yeah, they just don't haven't written any lines for it, so we're just gonna these are our characters. this is what where we're gonna get by the end, and let's just see what happens and so you could still do that that would is what would make it fun and not drudgery, as I was describing is oh, I've outlined the whole thing now I gotta have the the you know the one where Ali meets the new boyfriend or whatever the the thing is. And to be able to, to still let things organically happen, even though you know how it's going to, that, that particular scene even is going to end, seems like an art.
4: And there are rules to improv too, of course. I mean, I've, taken, I've done enough improv to know that there, there are certain things that you have to do to make it, to actually make improv work. Those are really good things when you're writing. Having to have some idea of how something ends so you don't write yourself into a corner is really important. Also, I know that when you're doing improv, the most important thing you can do is listen.
3: Mm-hmm. Out of that,
4: the good dialogue comes. Yes?
3: Definitely. And it's also listening, you know, listening to your characters, but it's also listening to outside feedback from your agent and from your editors. I love that once I sort of finish a draft, how collaborative writing becomes. And I think it's because I tend to think of myself as kind of a team player. I think that's kind of why I liked theater and improv. I liked how collaborative it was. And so once we get to the stage where I'm working with others and we all have the same goal of making this piece work better, it becomes really, really fun for me. What about you? How do you like working with others on your writing? I don't really work with others until that
4: final stage with the editing process. hmm I have learned the most about writing from working with really good editors very early on. I'm going back almost 35 years. It's longer than that since I started writing. When I finished a book, I was introduced to a woman named Smase Boulding Davis, who was old, a really old school editor. She'd actually edited Faulkner and AG, so she was just brilliant. And that was before all of the resources that we have now. She just had a huge dictionary on a, that was her reference. I was so taken with the first chapter that she gave back to me. When I looked at it with all of that, those red squigglies everywhere, I asked her if I could sit next to her while she edited. And she allowed that. And I would, I would just go to her, her place in in the morning and I would sit there and watch how she edited. Hmm. Also, talk. And I can't tell you how much I learned from her in terms of plotting and, and character and just all kinds of things. It was the best writing course I ever had.
3: Wow. Yeah. And a good editor, there's, <laughs> it is such a different skill than writing. They know story. So editors usually aren't writers. Right. I've ever
4: known. And I was, I was married to a wonderful editor. He was not a writer. It's, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a very separate skill.
2: What's the piece of feedback that you've most hated getting from an editor, but which nonetheless was definitely good advice. Oh oh gosh. I've done some professional editing and my, (laughs) like the bet my, the best experience in the world is giving feedback to a writer and having them curse you out of the room uh, in the moment, and then come back the next day and said, I tried the thing you said, and it's actually a really good idea. Thank you.
4: It always happens. Yeah.
2: yeah.
4: It always happens. I always, I, well, when I'm writing my essays for ARP and I, and I get uh, notes, can you do this? Can you do And I, I rail, I swear, I, <laughs> but I mean, not in front of the editor. <laughs> of course, they're right. It's that old thing of you have to kill your darlings. To me, really good writing is all about clarity. And very often, it's uh, it's an editor that points out that that's what's missing in a in a section or whatever, clarity.
0: I'm really glad we got to that point because we haven't really talked about style. And it seems like the style of popular fiction in general, and certainly these two books, and this seems to be having a transparent style, right? The reason that Stephen King is so readable is, you know, he and his on writing books said, remove all the adverbs, just yep. present it. Tell, don't describe. Uh, and Catherine, you even refer in September girl to, you know, this writer character, how I forget what the phrase was, but you know, I used to do, you know, these, these poetic things. And now I know just, just put down what you want to say.
4: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of literary fiction, although there's, there are certainly titles that I've read over the years that are literary fiction that I really, really loved. As some of it, I, I find it, it's pretentious and, and again, likes clarity. I, I don't know why being obscure is considered as something good. It doesn't work for me. As
3: an English major, I've read, I've read it all, <laughs> but I do, uh, or not, not at all, but I've read a lot. And there's certain things about literary fiction that I love. I love attention to language and turn of phrase. I love, you know, and, but the sweet spot for me is, someone like Ann Patchett, who can write beautifully, but also have just such a compelling story that I don't want to put down. John Irving does that for me, too. I mean, there's just so many authors who I think really write beautifully, but they have just a, such a compelling story that, you know, I end up staying way, way past my bedtime. I know, I'm nodding away because I totally,
4: I totally agree. I mean, I love reading Fitzgerald and I read, uh, I, oh, I don't know how many times. There are just uh, some authors that I, I just love and language is so important to me. Choosing that right word, getting rid of adverbs. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that one. And I have certain little things that I, I know are my, are better noir for me. And I have to go back and excise them when I'm writing that second draft. I, I totally agree with what you're saying.
0: For folks that don't spend a lot of time with uh, contemporary literary fiction, my sister kind of got me into this because she was disgusted that I was reading all this science fiction and, and fantasy and whatever. And, and in fact, she said, Mark, why crap? Why do you spend your time reading crap? So so she <laughs> set me up. But these, you know, like Paul Auster and Haruki Murakami and Ann Patchett probably falls in this category. Yeah. They're so readable. Like there's nothing. It's not like reading Shakespeare. It's not a. It's not painful. It's just, you know, the the the. Or kind even of stuff. reading
3: Thomas Pynchon.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh God. No. No. No more uh, Thomas Pynchon in my life for sure. Nope. But yeah. So the you know good literary fiction is just good fiction, and it has this clarity. You know, it's just it's interesting, and I don't mm-hmm. know if there's a sociological thing of these people or you know have these publishers and are approved by these audiences and. Uh, some of these others, you know, it's just a marketing thing. It seems like,
4: yeah, I, I, somebody said that to me. Uh, I, you know, why why do you spend your time reading all of this crap? When I was reading some of the women that I uh, authors that I mentioned before, you know, Marjorie Ellingham and the Marsh, and and uh, and I mean, just wonderful writers who were writing in that genre. But they're but, but really wonderful. And Lord Peter Whimsy, all of those books. Mm. I mean, they're just inc- they're incredibly well written. And P.D. James,
1: mm-hmm.
4: wonderful writer, and those are books you just can't put down. But they're definitely, you know, genre books. But uh, for genre writer, uh, P.D. James certainly touches
3: on literary fiction. But don't you think, though, that like, just to give a little bit of a shout out again to genre fiction, that it's really hard to do it well, no matter what it is, if it's romance or science fiction. It's really hard to do this stuff well. And I know like people like Jodi Picoult it gets crap for being, you know, kind of mom fiction, whereas she is incredibly successful for a really good reason. She's a great writer. Her readers are absolutely devoted to her. Same with Jennifer Weiner. She is fantastic. She is there's nobody better at what she does than Jennifer Weiner. She may not get reviewed in the New York Times as often as as someone else, but that doesn't have anything to do with her talent.
2: One of the things that I find myself appreciating more and more in fiction as I've got older, like the last 10 or 15 years, which I never really cared about before. Previously, it was all like the poetic language of something I was drawn to or like a particular style or groundbreaking experimentation with something or other. But but these days something I really really latch onto is is craft. Exactly the kind of thing that 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 you were saying. Like I'll, I'll read a I'm a big genre fiction guy as well. I was rereading Patrick Rothfuss the other day, who has only written two parts of a trilogy called The Kingkiller Chronicles. But the the thing that really stood out to me on on rereading it was just the pacing, the fact that he was like clearly setting stuff up that I knew was going to pay off later. How consistent the dialogue and the characters were. All this stuff which I, you could just tell that effort had been put into to presenting every part of the story in a way that would make the reader engage with it and even more than the poetry which was there and the character which was there just the fact that this was an instance of somebody being very good at what they do is very very pleasing to me and seems seems like something that's underappreciated in literature compared to say movies or or tv or other forms of art
3: yeah i would say so yeah i agree with that
0: so good. Setting such high standards for himself that he can't finish the goddamn next book. That's a different topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you the-
4: so much. It was really nice to meet you. Well, nice to see you, Al. This is, this has been terrific. Thank you for letting me join you.
0: All right. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, listeners. Bye bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Don't
1: you love an extra $100 in your pocket?